0: Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. What else set a tragic stage for Nero and invested him with the mask and tragic boots? Was it not the praise of his flatterers? And is not almost any king called an Apollo if he can hum a tune, and a Dionysus if he gets drunk, and a Hercules if he can wrestle? And is he not delighted and thus led on to all kinds of disgrace by the flattery? Hello and welcome to The Cost of Glory, a shorter episode today. I've been thinking a lot about Pompey the Great, His bio is coming soon, and I've been wondering what exactly was it that brought about his downfall, and might it have something to do with the people he surrounded himself with? Well, Plutarch has a treatise that speaks more or less to that exact general question entitled, How to Tell a Flatterer from a Friend, and that's where that quote that I just read you is from. And I'm gonna to present to you a couple of short lessons and stories from that text today. And I like this essay of Plutarch's because the message is as relevant today as ever. Surrounding yourself with the right people who are going to be honest with you and make you better instead of the wrong people who are often going to make you feel good about yourself in the short term, but more likely to fail in the long term. Well, this is maybe the most important thing that you can do on the path to glory, finding career success, et cetera, and I would argue it's even more relevant in the internet age, uh, our time of long distance friendships, there's new constraints on friendships, new pressures to not be frank with each other and to, to flatter each other, as Plutarch talks a lot about in this treatise, so I think it's really interesting. And before we get into it, we're gonna talk about surrounding yourself with good people In this episode. And so, speaking of surrounding yourself with good people, I want to give a special shout out to my friends at Ralston College, which is a brand new higher education project. They have a fully funded one year in person master's degree in the humanities, and they're now accepting applications for their third class of students. This is the third year they've been running the program, and I've been good friends with the people that are in the leadership there for many years. And they also brought me out to give a talk at their beautiful campus in Savannah, Georgia this past fall. In their one-year MA program, they start with a semester in Greece on the island of Samos, where you can learn Greek intensively, uh, so you can read the original texts of the Western tradition, like Plato, Homer, the New Testament, and of course, Plutarch. And that last part alone, that their dedication to mastering the language... Uh, The classical languages, Greek especially, they also offer Latin soon, I think. This is, makes it a really unique experience. Uh, The methods that they use to do it in particular, intensive language immersion, are extremely effective. I really wish that this sort of thing existed when I was earlier in my career. And I think most important of all, they understand the spirit of what is the essence of engaging with the great monuments of antiquity. And it's hard to explain, but if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, I think you probably know what I mean. The word renaissance comes to mind, and I'm really inspired by their work and also by the quality of the students that they've attracted. Because in any educational endeavor, your, your co-students are such a major part of what you get out of it. Well, if you're interested or if you know somebody who is, check out their website uh, for the MA program, slash humanities dash ma that's slash humanities dash ma i'll I'll put a link in the show notes as well and thank you ralston college for being fans of the cost of glory Um, now then how to tell a friend from a flatterer this treatise interestingly is addressed to a man named Philopappus, who was a client prince roman client prince of syria and he's a friend of plutarch's and there's actually a monument to this Philopappus guy that sits prominently in the skyline of modern Athens now. So he was a pretty important man in his day. And flatterers are more of a problem the higher you rise in your career and in the world. But I think this is also useful advice for pretty much anyone, as you'll see. And Plutarch gives one reason at the very beginning as to why you should care. Quote, the flatterer is in all likelihood an enemy to the gods, and particularly to the Pythian God. He's talking about the the Oracle of Delphi. For the flatterer always takes a position over against the maxim, the famous Delphic maxim: Know thyself, by creating in every man deception toward himself and ignorance both of himself and of the good and evil that concerns himself. The good he renders defective and incomplete. The evil wholly impossible to amend. So a flatterer can be really dangerous to your, to your health, uh, your, your, your psychic health. So it's important knowledge. And a flatterer, Plutarch goes on, is the sort of friend who is also likely to abandon you in tough times. And so it's good to know who they are before you get into that kind of a situation. Whereas a friend will do his best to help you from making a big mistake say, date the wrong person, take the wrong job, buy the wrong jet ski. A flatterer won't do anything to keep you from destroying yourself. So, you know, you got to figure out who your good friends are and who, who are the ones that are just flatterers. Now, good friends will praise each other, mind you, without being flatterers. And f- while flatterers are pleasant, good friends are pleasant too. So just because somebody makes you feel good or, you know, praises you, that's not a way necessarily of telling whether they're a flatterer or a a true friend. So it's not easy to tell them apart necessarily. So what are some some of the ways, Plutarch asks? Here's a first test that he gives. Does this person live by the same values around you as they do when you're not around? Here's a quote characterizing the typical flatterer. If he is on the track of a scholarly and studious young man, now again he is absorbed in books, his beard grows down to his feet, the scholar's gown is the thing now, and a stoic indifference, an endless talk about Plato's numbers and right-angled triangles, things that philosophers in those days used to talk about. At another time, if some easy-tempered man fall in his way, the flatterer, who is a hard drinker and rich, Then stands forth the wily Odysseus, stripped of his tatters. Off goes the scholar's gown. The beard is mowed down like an unprofitable crop. It's wine, coolers, and glasses now. Bursts of laughter while walking in the streets. And frivolous jokes against the devotees of philosophy. And he's going to flesh this out with an example. So just so at Syracuse, it is said, after Plato had arrived, this is when Plato visited Sicily, and an insane ardor for philosophy laid hold on Dionysius, the tyrant of Syracuse. The king's palace was filled with dust by reason of the multitude of men that were drawing their geometrical diagrams in it. But when Plato fell out of favor and Dionysius, shaking himself free of philosophy, returned in haste to wine and women and foolish talk and licentiousness, then grossness and forgetfulness and fatuity seized upon the whole people as though they had undergone a transformation in Circe's house. So everybody just, philosophy went out of fashion really quick once, once Plato fell out of favor. A further testimony, interesting character we'll come to in The Cost of Glory soon, is to be found in the action of great flatterers and the great demagogues of whom the greatest was Alcibiades. At Athens, he indulged in frivolous jesting, kept a racing stable and led a life full of urbanity and agreeable enjoyment. At Sparta, however, he kept his hair cropped close. He wore the coarsest clothing, and he bathed in cold water because the Spartans were into ice baths. In Thrace, he was a fighter and a hard drinker, but when he came to Tissaphernes, the Persian, he took to soft living and luxury and pretentiousness so, by making himself like to all these people and conforming his way to theirs, he tried to conciliate them and win their favor. Not of this type, however, was a Epaminondas or a Agesilaus, who, although they had to do with a very large number of men and cities and modes of life, yet maintained everywhere their own proper character in dress, conduct, language, and life. So too, Plato in Syracuse was the same sort of man as he was in the Academy in Athens. And to Dionysius, he was the same as to his friend Dion. And I hope we'll get to the life of Dion relatively soon on the cost of glory. So the flatterer is uh, the sort of person who goes with the fashion of the times, doesn't have a really consistent character. Contrast the true friend here. The true friend is neither an imitator of everything nor ready to commend everything, but only the best things." And he gives the example uh, contrasting with the Flatterer. You know, people in antiquity were said to, to copy Plato's stoop. Apparently, Plato kind of had a way of, like, leaning forward. Um, and people would copy that to, to seem more like philosophers. Aristotle apparently spoke with a kind of a lisp, um, and people would copy that. And Alexander kind of tilted his neck when he talked at you. So, so people would copy these things. I mean, you know, in antiquity as, as in today, it's, you know, human nature is always the same. People wearing black turtlenecks to seem like Steve Jobs. And so flattery is kind of a bad imitation or a, or a shallow imitation. That's, that's the kind of form it takes. And he goes on, you know, whereas a friend will find a polite way of pointing out your errors or your faults, conversely quote the flatterer desiring to be and to seem pleasant and loyal at the same time affects to take greater delight in the worse things as one who for the great love he bears toward you will take no offence even at what is base but feels with his friend and shares his nature in all things for this reason flatterers will not be denied a share even in the chances of life which happen without our will but they flatter the sickly by pretending to be afflicted with the same malady and not to be able to see or hear distinctly if they have to do with those who are dim-sighted or hard of hearing. This is funny. Just as the flatterers of Dionysius, that tyrant of Sicily again, whose sight was failing, used to bump against one another and upset the dishes at dinner. So it's, you know, these are kind of funny examples, and some of these are are a little more obvious. We're going to get to some less obvious examples in a second here. Uh, But this essay is sort of also about not just how to discern flatterers among potential friends, but also how not to be a flatterer yourself and to be a good and true friend. And one of the virtues that Plutarch talks about uh, of a good friend, kind of the opposite of flattery in the field of friendship is free speech, the Greek word is paresia, which literally means a willingness to say everything. And a good maxim uh, Plutarch offers here is what Xenophon says about King Agesilaus of Sparta. As Xenophon says of Agesilaus, he was glad to be commended by those who were willing to blame him. Praise means a lot more coming from someone willing to blame you as well as praise you. Uh, So that's the virtue that that you want to counteract to flattery. But uh, before we get to Paresia, Plutarch draws an interesting point that's potentially relevant today on the effect of tribalism on flattery that I think is really interesting and not necessarily intuitive. He he references a famous passage of Thucydides. Uh, Thucydides talked in his History of the Peloponnesian War about the moral effects of factionalism in a great civil war that took place on the island of Corsaira. There were Greeks living in, um, you know, they'd been living in harmony and then they broke out into faction and uh, started killing each other. And here's Plutarch's summary of kind of the lesson from that and what happened. Amid factions and wars, Thucydides says, they changed the commonly accepted meaning of words when applied to deeds as they thought proper. Reckless daring came to be regarded as devoted courage, watchful waiting as specious cowardice, moderation as a craven's pretext, a keen understanding for everything as a lack of energy to undertake anything. And so in attempts at flattery, he he relates this to kind of the the broader picture of flattery. In, In attempts at flattery, we should be observant and on our guard against prodigality being called liberality. You know, people calling, you know, you spend a ton of money, they call that, oh, you're generous. Cowardice being called self-preservation. Impulsiveness being called quickness. Stinginess being called frugality, et cetera, et cetera. So flattery can kind of change the meaning of words. And this happens especially in these kind of tribal situations too. War brings out the best and the worst of human nature, civil war in particular, like we see in the lives of so many of the men that we cover in this podcast, especially around the fall of the Roman Republic, Pompey, Caesar, Cato, before them Sulla, Marius, Sertorius, I mean, when a conflict divides a healthy community, you know, even though war brings out the best in people, you know, civil war really tends to bring out the worst in people. Uh, which is one of the reasons these are such terrible things for for humans to undergo you know in these situations um that that the romans were experiencing you have to do everything you can to hold the moral bar high and to not egg people on just because they're quote on your side and this is something that people really admired about cato, cato the younger in the roman civil war he restrained his troops from using The excuse of, you know, such and such people were disloyal to the regime, and so we're just doing our patriotic duty by plundering them uh, at the city of Utica. He he held them back from that. So um, I thought that was a really interesting point. Now, flatterers can be very subtle, and Plutarch lists some tricky tactics of flattery here, (laughs) and some of them are kind of funny. So, you know, smart people are often, like, on their guard against flattery, And um, so, you know, sometimes the Flatterer has to be very, very tricky. So the Flatterer, quoting Plutarch here, does not deploy his praise in a frontal attack, sometimes, but fetches a wide circuit and approaches noiseless, as though to catch a beast, touching and handling him. Now he will report other people's praise of the man quoting another's words as public speakers do how he had the pleasure of meeting in the marketplace with some strangers or elderly men who recounted many handsome things of you and expressed their admiration and he gives another example here that that must be personal that uh you know guy comes up and he he makes some kind of trivial false accusation against you and then he says that he heard this from other people and he he just wanted to bring it by you you know did you say such and such about so and so? And then when you say, no, of course I did not, he said, oh, I I never believed that you would have said so and so because you're such an honest man and how could they ever say that? So there's all kinds of tricky ways that you can kind of insinuate praise of other people if you're uh, trying to get in their good graces for some ulterior motive. So be on guard against that one. Another form of flattery Plutarch lists is what we might call grade inflation. Here's a quote from Carneades, a philosopher. Carneades used to say that the sons of the wealthy and the sons of kings do learn to ride on horseback, but that they learn nothing else well and properly. For in their studies, their teacher flatters them with praise, and their opponent in wrestling does the same by submitting to be thrown. Whereas the horse, having no knowledge or concern even as to who is private citizen or ruler, or rich or poor, throws headlong those who cannot ride him. <laughs> a horse is incapable of flattery, which is you know, one of the reasons why it's a, it's a great teaching tool. And so, you know, when you're educating your kids, find ways that they can get real feedback, and there's, it's impossible to have great inflation. Very difficult in many of our institutions of higher learning today. And so, really, what we ought to do Plutarch says, is find people who are willing to be frank with us, to use paresia, to use free speech, the willingness to say everything. But even here, you have to pay attention because a skilled flatterer knows that seeming like a frank critic will make them even more effective at being flatterers. So see if you've ever met a person like this that Plutarch describes here. But the flatterer in the first place makes a parade of harshness and of being acrimonious and inexorable in his bearing toward others. For he is rough with his own servants and very quick to pounce on the errors of his kinsmen and household, refusing to admire or extol any outsider, but rather despising all such. He is relentless in his efforts to stir up others to anger by his slanders. His aim is to get the name of being a hater of iniquity and to give the impression that he would not willingly abate his frankness to please others nor do or say anything at all to curry favor so he's kind of harsh with everyone else but but very you know flattering with you in the second place he acts as though he does not know or notice a single real and important misdeed but he is very quick to swoop down upon trifling and immaterial shortcomings and to indulge in an intense and vehement tirade if he sees that a bit of furniture is carelessly placed, if he sees that a man is a poor manager, if anyone is careless with his haircut or about his clothing or does not give proper care to some dog or horse, but let a man disregard his parents, like let a man actually do something bad, disregard his parents, neglect his children, insult his wife, disdain his household, squander his money, All this is nothing to such a flatterer, but in the midst of such matters, he is mute and craven, like a trainer who allows an athlete to get drunk and live loosely, and then is very stern about the oil flask or the flesh scraper, or maybe, you know, what bar of soap he uses in the shower or something for modern athletes, or like a schoolmaster who scolds a boy about his slate and pencil and affects not to hear his blunders in grammar and diction. And to sum it up, Plutarch says, this is the sort of thing that flatterers do. They apply their frankness to those parts of us that feel no hurt or pain. So you gotta be careful what kind of frankness to look for in a friend. And uh, the the essay's filled with many, you know, very tricky stratagems of, of sophisticated flatterers. One very, you know, elite levels, royal court caliber flatterer trick is to blame the virtue that opposes your peculiar vice. And so to call that opposing virtue to your vice, to call that virtue a vice, here's what he means. So like if you're stingy, they'll say, oh, Alex, you're too generous with your friends. And then you feel good about being stingy, right? Oh, Alex. You're so disciplined. You work so hard. You never cut loose as you have your third beer for the night. And then he gives a great historical example that we'll cover soon on the cost of glory. Mark Antony, who fell under the spell of Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. And he explains the story here. So the friends of Antony, who was consumed with love of the Egyptian woman, Cleopatra, tried to make him believe that she was enamored of him "'and upbraiding him, they would call him cold and haughty. "'For the woman forsaking so great a kingdom "'and so many happy employments "'is wearing her life away as she follows with you "'on your marches in the guise of a concubine. "'Ah, but the mind in your breast "'is proof against enchantment, "'and you are indifferent to her distress. "'He was pleased at being taken to task "'for such wrongdoing.' and taking more pleasure in those who accused him than he did even in any who commended him, he failed to see that by this seeming admonition he was being perversely drawn towards her. So some of his friends, of his, you know, some flatterers were saying, yeah, Mark, you're a boss. You got that hot queen for your girlfriend. And actually the ones who pleased him more were the ones who were saying, oh, Antony, you're so harsh on her. You know, you're indifferent to her distress. He was actually more pleased by this kind of fake criticism because it, it, it encourages him into the vice that he's already committed to. Brilliant flattery work there. And that arguably became Anthony's downfall. And one way to tell a flatterer from a friend is to look at how they behave towards your other friends, Plutarch says. Good friends want you to have other friends. All things are common to friends, is this famous Greek saying. They, you know, They want you to have good relationships with your other friends. But a flatterer will chase away your other friends, like the painter, Plutarch says, who painted for his client a terrible picture of some chickens. And when the client came to inspect the painting, the painter had his servants chase away all of the real chickens as far away as possible from the canvas so as to make it less obvious how false the painted chickens were. And uh, he says that this happened with Alexander the Great. He had a flatterer named Medius who chased away all of Alexander's truer friends, unfortunately. And uh, so, so the second half of this essay, Plutarch spends talking about how you can be a good friend, and not a flatterer, by using paresia, or frankness, well. And he stresses here that it's very important, you know, if you see your friend veering off from the good path, to be careful and to find the right occasion and the right method to approach them about it because, you know, good intentioned criticism often does more harm than flattery, let's be honest. Uh, Some strategies that he gives are more obvious, you know, don't correct your friend in front of other people, especially, you know, in front of other people that they whose opinions they really care about, like their wife or kids or employer, etc. And and this, Plutarch explains, was a big factor in this famous sad incident in the life of Alexander the Great when he murders his friend in a fit of rage at this party. Um, The guy whose name was Cletus. And Cletus made the mistake of criticizing and insulting Alexander at a banquet rather than, say, pulling him aside privately Um, And you also should never offer paresia when when you or your friend are drunk. Again, that's another mistake that Cletus made. In that instance, both of them were pretty smashed. And it's easy to be frank when you're drunk, right? That's not an indication of virtue. So, you know, if you're going to offer some frankness to a friend, make sure you don't do it in such a way um, that is, is bound to fail. Another thing to keep in mind is to, uh, when you offer your frankness, don't do it in such a way that it seems like you are serving your own interests in any way. Achilles, in the Iliad, at the beginning of the Iliad, he reproaches Agamemnon because Agamemnon has been stingy in sharing the war booty with all the Greeks, but, you know, Achilles is included in that number. And, you know, Achilles has been personally harmed by Agamemnon, uh, you know, not, not kind of, hoarding all of the good loot to himself. And so Agamemnon, he flies into a rage. It gets personal because it is personal and Agamemnon can see that. Um, it's of course more complicated than that, but that is a factor there. But then later in the poem, Odysseus criticizes Agamemnon in another context where he has no personal stake in the matter. And Agamemnon says, well, okay, that's fair. You know, It shows Agamemnon can take criticism in the right contexts. So make sure you're doing it objectively on behalf of other people, or, or, you, or you make it seem like that way, at least. You can often also make your admonitions more effective if you're indirect. And Plutarch shares a rare personal example here that I think is really cool. You don't get to see Plutarch a lot, the man in the, in the biographies. He does kind of talk about himself a little bit in the dialogues here and there. Quote, But some persons manage more cleverly and by finding fault with strangers, turn their own intimate acquaintances to repentance. So you criticize someone else who's maybe who's absent. For they accuse the others of doing what they know their own acquaintances are doing. My professor Ammonius, at an afternoon lecture, perceived that some of his students had eaten a luncheon that was anything but frugal and so he ordered his freedmen to chastise his own servants, remarking by way of explanation that that boy can't lunch without his wine. And at the same time, he turned his glance toward us so that the rebuke took hold of the guilty. So, you yeah, Plutarch, a little shame-faced there after having a bit too much fun in their, in their lunch break. thought that was really funny and, and, and well handled by their teacher. By their good friend of a teacher gently placing his criticism uh, indirectly at others another tactic is to tell a story where you yourself in the story made a similar mistake in the iliad as Plutarch explains achilles's tutor phoenix this is in book 9 and the famous embassy you know, these greeks come to achilles retreated from the army in a rage against Agamemnon, and some of Achilles' best buds come, and they try to persuade him to come back to the army. And his tutor, Phoenix, this older man, is trying to encourage him to come back, and he tells this story, this long story about, you know, their history together. But in the story, he explains how he came to Achilles' father first, as an exile because he had slain a man in a fit of rage and so he's basically saying plutarch says it's exactly because he's trying to soften the blow of his correction to achilles you know you're a little out of hand here achilles you've given too much rein to your rage but he tells that story kind of to subtly suggest, hey you know we all do stuff in a rage sometimes i killed a man <laughs> but then it's good to come to your senses after that too. So that's a, a good way to use parecia, use kind of frankness in reproaching a friend to say that, hey, we're all sinners here. And there are many other stories and tactics in this essay, examples of how to gently reprove and correct a friend tactfully. The principle though, to keep in mind, and I'll let you read the rest of the essay on your own if you want to, the principle to keep in mind as Aristotle said, is that the best friendships are based not just on mutual benefits, not just on mutual pleasure, enjoying each other's company, etc., but on a common recognition of excellence, on common standards of virtue. Your friends should hold you to a high standard. You should feel honored when they do and return the favor in like manner. That's all for today stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.